This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Jonathan File. He is an adventurer. After graduating from Gilderland High School and earning a bachelor's degree in agriculture from Cobleskill, File wanted to immerse himself in another culture. He joined the Peace Corps and was sent to Gambia in West Africa. After two months of training, he settled in a rural village of about 300 people. He was learning the language, making friends, and preparing to undertake his first project when, because of the coronavirus pandemic, the Peace Corps brought home all of its volunteers. Back home in Gilderland, Vile packed a tent and camping gear onto his bike and solo set off to pedal across the country. So are you what is now called a free-range child? I mean, there's so many children that now have everything scheduled, like Little League games or dance lessons, and there's kind of a movement back to just letting kids out the door to play. Were you one of those kids? Yeah, I would say it was kind of like half and half. Um, I had a lot of structured stuff. I went to a lot of summer camps. I uh, played a lot of sports, did a lot of activities, but I definitely had a lot of lot of time where I just was in the yard or out in the woods with friends or just exploring. And yeah, it, it was pretty free, I would say. Pretty what? good. <laughs> so you went through the Gilderland school system and you graduated five years ago. And then yep. you went to Cobleskill. And tell us about what you studied there. Yeah, at Cobleskill, I studied plant science, where they focus on horticulture. And what made so, you what a lot made of you agronomy. choose? I'm sorry. What made you choose that? Um, I well, I originally went to school for exercise science because I was a big uh, runner, like a track runner, coming out of high school. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I just uh, I had a kind of a change my freshman year, and I realized I wanted to work outside and kind of get to know the earth and the soil and <laughs> do a, do something a little more um, holistic, I guess. And it turns out that was a good choice for you. You stuck with that, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. It was definitely a great choice. That um, definitely was what launched me into the Peace Corps, was yeah. having that degree in agriculture. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy with the choice I made. I think it's opened a lot of doors, <laughs> which is really cool. So tell us about the Peace Corps. It is now a, a kind of organization where you need real skills in order to help someone. Way back when I graduated from college and I wanted to be in the Peace Corps, I was an English major, which is totally useless. So tell us like, why you decided to um, apply for the Peace Corps in the first place. What, what made you think that was something that was worth doing? Uh, yeah, well, we had a uh, a job fair at our college and I, when I was a senior, and mm-hmm. so I went to it, and, you know, there's all types of jobs and stuff, and Peace Corps was one of the booths, and so I talked to one of the recruiters, and at that time, it was kind of just, I didn't, you know, I was a senior in college, I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do after I graduated, but I had a good idea that I didn't want to immediately start working in the traditional sense, so, you know, my goal was to really kind of explore and peace corps is a great way to do that because you're supported by the u.s government (laughs) so you're never really too uh in trouble you have all the resources but at the same time you're also going into a completely new culture and you know what's most likely a very undeveloped country and 
Yeah, it's just an adventure. I think that's uh, that was the biggest draw for me. I wanted to do something different. So did you get to choose where you wanted to go, or did they assign it? How does that work? I think it's changed now as, after COVID, but when I applied, I, I initially applied for Senegal. And then I got rejected from Senegal for medical issues because I have asthma. And then I, and then they they like automatically reapplied me to a different country and eventually they, they said I got accepted to the Gambia. And so I didn't really care where I was going. <laughs> I just wanted to go and do it and, and, and live it. But isn't that interesting? Asthma is a problem in Senegal but not in Gambia. Huh. What yeah, did, yeah, it was really weird. <laughs> what made you choose Senegal? Before, what, why did you settle on that? I mean, Africa has so many different parts and aspects. Why? Mm-hmm. What made you think of that one? I think it was the time frame when it was uh, going to depart. So I wanted to leave sometime in the fall of 2019. So I kind of well, I graduated college in May 2019, and I wanted to kind of have the summer to relax, see my friends, family, and everything before I leave. So the time frame seemed right, and then it was also an agriculture position. So it was a position I was qualified for. And so tell us about Gambia. When did you leave for that, and what was it like, and what did you do there? Yeah, so I left for Gambia in the beginning of October 2019. Um, And I was there for about five and a half months, and we got evacuated along with uh, every other volunteer in the world came home because of COVID, so that was really stressful. But uh, it was it was incredible. It was quite the experience. Um, you know, there's a lot of hard hard things you got to deal with when you go like, abroad and you do it in the way you do it in Peace Corps. And um, but yeah, it, just incredible. I mean, the people are fantastic. Um, the culture is fascinating. The uh, the experience as a whole is just it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Um, I'll never forget, like, the first week we got dropped off in the country, you know. You step off the plane, and it's, like, 95 degrees, 100% humidity. You're immediately sweating. There's people all around you yelling. You're in this big, crazy airport, and, you know, (laughs) you have no idea what's going on. You're tired. You've been on a plane for, like, 20 hours. So, yeah, it it was just um, very challenging but very cool. Um, And I guess what I did, basically, so as an agriculture volunteer, um, we worked primarily with uh, villages, like food production. So I was working in their community garden a lot. Un- unfortunately, we got evacuated right before we were going to start and do it to do actual, you know, actual projects in the village. So uh, there- there's like phases of a, of a Peace Corps service, and you spend your first two to three months at your permanent site, just integrating in the community. And so we had just finished that phase right when we got evacuated. I didn't get to do, I didn't get to leave too much of an impact, but uh, I still got to, you know, experience the culture, live in the village, you know, have a host family, kind of integrate to the society and all that. Well, I want to back up to just have you walk through for us. Here you are describing landing in this plane, you're exhausted, having flown halfway mm-hmm. around the world, and you said it's very, very mm-hmm. hot, and you're sweating, and it's humid, and there's this crazy atmosphere in the airport. So what happened next? How did you get from there to a village? And Just kind of walk us through your journey. You've arrived, and now what happens? Yeah. Yeah, so the first two months of service, 
in the Gambia was training. So as a cohort, we had about 44 people in our cohort. Um, it was split about 50-50, so half the cohort was agriculture volunteers. The other half was health volunteers. And so for the first two months, you're training. So they take you, they pick you up from the airport. They bring you to the Peace Corps office. You spend a night there. Um, they kind of explain what they're going to do. You get a bunch of vaccines and you do a bunch of like medical paperwork. And then, um, and then they, they bus everyone out to the training center. So in the Gambia, our training center was in Masembe, which was kind of halfway, maybe about halfway in the middle of the country. So it's a long, the long, narrow country. Gambia is kind of, so the training center is right in the middle. So you're, you're in the office and then you stay there for a day or two. And then they bus everyone out to the training center where you live for another few days and then they take the cohort, they split everyone up into groups of five or six and then you all go and you live at a training village and that's where you spend your first two months of the service. So A lot of slideshows, a lot of, uh, you know, bureaucratic stuff, um, a lot of learning too, a lot of language training. You have to get, you know, fairly competent in the language that your village speaks, which is really cool too. What, what language was that? I was speaking Mandinka. Mandinka. So in the Gambia, there was five main languages, uh-huh. and whichever one you spoke just depended on what region of the country you lived in. But my language was Mandinka, and as I was in the Lower River region. Can you say something for us in Mandinka? Can you remember <laughs> a sentence or a yeah, phrase? Yeah, uh, let me think. I mean, you know, every day you would do the greetings, like, Salam Alaikum, Alaikum Salam. Uh, you know, like I'm from Badame Koto. That was my village. So, so you're somebody yeah. that learns, you <laughs> learn while, languages easily. You're somebody that picked that up in just a few months. Isn't that remarkable? So tell us about the village. What, what were the houses like? What was the layout of the village itself like? Yeah, the village, it was much different than in America, as you would expect. Um, my village was really small, so I, I had about maybe 300 people in my village. And basically, the villages are split up into compounds. So each family has a compound, um, and they can be, the size of a family can be five people, or it can be 30 people, <laughs> a lot of kids, um, and, you know, grandparents, husbands, wives, all that, and they all live in a compound. So it's like a big, kind of like a square area. And people live in, like, row houses. So each person has their own room, their own backyard. The backyards are sectioned, but all the rooms are attached in kind of a long row house. And so as a volunteer, we had our own room in our own little backyard area for some privacy, which is really nice. Um, but, yeah, and so all the villages are laid out fairly similar. Um, just a lot of compounds, and every village will have a mosque because uh, Gambia is a Muslim country, so they're praying five times a day. Um, and, yeah. So you were hosted by a family in one of these compounds. Tell us about what the family was like that you lived with. My family was awesome. Um, they uh, last name Sonko, <laughs> so the Sonko family, which is a very common name in the Gambia. Um, yeah, they were really cool. I had my host father. He uh, he was pretty old, probably in his sixties or seventies, and then he had uh, his wife. And they had a few kids, a few older kids. So I had a few brother, older, most brothers who were around my age, which was really nice. And then there's some 
few of their wives who were also in their 20s, which is really cool. And then they had a uh, a few really young kids. They had a, two kids who were both like five or six years old, and they would just run around. They were really funny. But it, my, my host family was pretty small, maybe 10 people. And the which is cool. The patriarch of the group, the host father in his sixties or seventies. What did he do for a living? Like, what was his occupation? My fa, my host father was the El Carlo. So he, or no, he wasn't the El Carlo. El Carlo, he's the imam. So he was the head religious figure in the village. So he led all the prayers. He led all the ceremonies that they would do. Um, and he also owned a lot of land. And so. Most of the society in the Gambia is pretty uh, agrarian, so most families make their money from the food they grow in the garden or in the fields. They grow a lot of ground nuts, um, a lot of onions. You know, they'll. Yeah, it's not a, a super wide variety of crops, but uh, yeah. So he he had a lot of land that he owned, and his sons would work the land. His sons in, and his um, I guess daughters too. So and they would sell it at the markets nearby. So you were in a very religious setting. If he was the imam, what what religion are you, or are mm-hmm. you? Do you have a religion of your own? No, I don't really have a religion. So did Pretty, you um, participate in any of the like going to the mosque, or was it something that you experienced their religion when you were there, or just kind of watched at a distance, or? Yeah, I would watch from a distance. I never went to the mosque for prayer, but I would do. I would go to a lot of their, so I'd go to the funerals um, where they'd read the Quran and stuff. I, I went to a few Quran reading ceremonies they had in my village. Um, I went to some naming ceremonies. I went to most of the ceremonies. I never went to the mosque. I'm sure I could have. I wasn't super uh, interested in it to be honest, when I was there. I'm sure had I been there for two years, eventually I would have I would have gone just to see what it was like. But yeah. um, I tried to keep religion kind of to the side for the most part when I was there. So, like, tell us what a naming ceremony is. Is that, like, equivalent to a baptism? What What is a naming ceremony? So that's um, whenever a family has a new child in the village, they'll have a naming ceremony where they name the child. Mm-hmm. And usually there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of food. Uh, it's kind of like just a big party. <laughs> they, they'll usually have someone come in with speakers and a generator. They'll play loud music, and everyone in the village kind of just hangs out and parties, you know. Wow. What it's, about it's pretty a, cool. What, what yeah. is a funeral like there? What do they do for the funerals? Yeah, for the funeral, I, I had one funeral when I was there in my village. Um, everyone kind of gathers around with the family and kind of gives their condolences. And then the village, everyone dresses up and comes together in the village. They do a bunch of, I, I, I assume, what is Quran readings or, you know, um, something religious. And then they, uh, you know, they take the body out, and then the men will walk the body out into the field and bury it, and then the women will stay back, and then everyone kind of just reconvenes together, and I think they just do more Quran readings and stuff, and uh, very somber, a lot of crying, as yeah. you'd expect. Yeah. Well, um, did you, were, with the, with the host family, did you speak to them in their native language all this time or did somebody know English or I mean that must have been a very large leap to have been living with a family if they didn't speak your language and you're just learning the new language yeah that was tough at first (laughs) there was definitely a big language barrier I had a host brother who was in his 20s who spoke some pretty good English so he helped me communicate a lot 
And then there was another member of the community who I worked with closely who also spoke some pretty good English. So they helped me translate. But most of my family did not speak very good English or any English at all. And so I would struggle to try to communicate with them. And, you know, obviously, as you get as you stay there longer, you get better at it. You start to figure it out more. But yeah, in the beginning, it was definitely rough. Just try to just, you know, something as simple as I'm going to the store to buy bread, you know, to be able to say that and then understand what they're saying in return. <laughs> yeah. So that was definitely a challenge. That brings up the subject of food. What kind of, did you eat with the family? When What kind of food did they have? Is is it similar or different to what you were used to? It's very different. It's a lot of rice. It's uh, a lot of rice. You know, three meals a day of rice, I would say, most of the year. Then they'll eat some porridge, too. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of just rice. You get a, a bowl of rice with um, some type of sauce. They have a variety of sauces, Benichin, oh, I'm trying to remember. There, there was names for all of them, um, but yeah, mostly rice. I I ate with my family, usually during lunch, and then I would make breakfast and dinner myself. I would just cook like eggs or something with some bread to get uh, some protein. Did you stay in touch? You said there was like a half dozen of you in a group that were sent to each village. Did you get to see the other Peace Corps workers while you were there? Is that part of like the daily exchange? Yeah. So you're you're together in a group during training. And then once you finish your two months of training, they send everyone out all across the country. So each volunteer during your service is in one. So they have one volunteer per village. I see. So I was lucky that I was in an area where I had other volunteers, villages nearby. So maybe within a 10-mile radius of my village at permanent site, I had five or six other volunteers who I got pretty close with. Um, so yeah, we would see each other a lot. Obviously, you get lonely, and it's nice to be around people who can also speak English and you know can relate to your culture. <laughs> so, so yeah, we hung out a lot. So what about transportation? I mean, how did how did you get from you know your village to see somebody in another village? Mm -hmm. Did cars or I biked. Oh, bikes! I biked almost everywhere. But then there's also a big network of public transportation in the Gambia. So there's taxis, which are expensive, and then they have these things called gelly gellies, which are these big vans. And they're basically, you just flag it down off the road, you pay them a fare, and then they drive you wherever you want to go. And they just run up and down the, the main road of the Gambia all the time, like all day, every day. So if I wanted to go somewhere farther than, you know, 30 or 40 miles and I didn't feel like biking, I would, uh, you just walk out to the road, you flag a gelly, you pay the fare, and then it just, it'll drive you there, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So tell us about <laughs> now, as COVID started spreading around the world how did you find out about it what was your source of news how how in general how did you get news in this village um well i was lucky that my village had decent service we were actually right near a cell tower so i got pretty good 3g service most of the time so i had access to the internet and also you know me and all the other volunteers we were all kind of in together in, in like various group chats and stuff like that. So we uh, we always were in touch. And so, yeah, whenever we'd hear something big, it would always get spread around through the group chats or through whatever types of communication we would all be doing together. <laughs> so you so, knew about yeah, the coronavirus first, uh, at, before you were evacuated and sent home. Like you could, you could be informed that it, yeah. it was spreading. Yeah, I think we started hearing about it in February. That's when it started 
we started to think maybe we might be getting evacuated <laughs> when it started to spread. And then obviously once it got to March, everyone had a pretty good idea that we were probably going to be leaving, but no one really knew for sure. And how, how did that go? Like you all had to just leave at once and how did that feel just to <laughs> be on, you know, having acclimated yourself to this whole new society and being ready to launch into your project and then gone. Um, yeah. How, how did that feel? How did that unfold? Yeah, no, that was pretty heartbreaking. Um, that was definitely a very rough time. Not, not a very fun time. Um, you know, obviously you just, yeah, I mean, you just got to know your host family and the whole community and you're starting to figure out the language and you're starting to feel like you're at home and you're making all these great friends in the cohort and other cohorts and all, all you know, great friends, all volunteers and stuff. And yeah, that was, that was really tough, really sad. So we got the message that we were being evacuated and then within 24 hours we had to be out of our village, which was, you know, <laughs> oh, boy. very sad. Everyone yeah. was very sad. Yeah, that was not a fun, not a fun experience. So is it something that you hope to return to someday when this is over, the pandemic? Or is that just a chapter in your life that's closed now? Yeah, I reapplied. So I don't know if I'm, I don't necessarily want to return to the Gambia or even Africa. I'm thinking maybe Southeast Asia or South America if I can. Um, but yeah, I think... Yeah, my, my time in the Gambia is definitely over, but I do I do want to go back into the Peace Corps again, 100% in the next few years. So you arrived home, and according to your father, you hopped on a bike and, <laughs> and rode out to Colorado. What? Tell us about that decision. What What made you decide, you know, getting home to to do that and all by yourself? Is that right? You You rode this all by yourself? Yeah. Yeah, by myself, yeah. So what, um, what was going through your mind yeah, when you decided I, to do that? <laughs> well, it's just crazy because you go into the Peace Corps and every day is almost, even the mundane days are fairly adventurous. And no matter how you know bored you are, you're still doing something crazy. You're still living in Africa or wherever you're living. You're still doing something so far beyond the nine to five, daily, like the day-to-day -day grind. And so... When I got back and I was home for with my parents, I kind of fell back into the being bored again. And I really craved, I kind of craved the adventure. <laughs> you know, I, it's like I got a really good taste of it, but I wasn't ready to just like settle down and, and start living normally again. And so I figured I've been cycling for years and I've been, I've been trying to plan, a, you know, a bikepacking trip for a long time and everything finally fell together and it seemed like the right time to do it. Um, so, yeah, I just decided to do it. <laughs> wow. And, ha like, just tell us, was there planning involved? Or you just, as you went, you, I guess these days you don't need a map. You have your phone, and you would just stop and get food yeah. along the way. And how did you plot your route? Or you just figured it out every day? And where did you sleep <laughs> along the way? Uh, I slept mostly in hotels, which is lucky. Um, I have like all the camping gear on the bikes. I have a tent. I have, I can boil water. I've got, you know, tarps, sleeping bags. I got everything on the bike for camping. Um, which I'm going to do a lot of, I think as I get into the mountains of Colorado, which I'm heading towards in the next few days. But, uh, yeah, for planning the routes, it was kind of the day before I would just look at, like, you know, my, I'd have a range of miles I'm trying to do for that day. It's usually 80 to a hundred miles per day. Um, 
and I would just look at where, you know, find a town that's 80 to 100 miles west of where I was and find a hotel, book the hotel, and then plan the route. And I uh, just wake up in the morning and, and bike the route <laughs> and just repeat that process every day. Oh, my gosh. So is it the kind of thing that was completely solo or did you meet interesting people along the way when you stopped at hotels or had meals? Did you get a sense of America besides the geography? Yeah, I met some nice people. Um, I mean, the biking was all solo. Um, and then I stayed with a few friends on my way out too, which was nice to like, see people. But uh, I would say 90% of the time, solo. I mean, definitely meet a lot of people. People are always curious when they see you going by with a ton of bags on your bike. <laughs> you look like a crazy person. So people are always asking me where I'm from. And obviously, as I got farther into the country, and when I would say I'm from New York, the reaction would just get crazier and crazier as I go farther. <laughs> and so, and you know, by a point where people, you get out into Kansas and you're like, yeah, I biked here from New York. People kind of just look at you like, you know, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, which I understand if you don't cycle, if you don't ride bikes. That definitely seems like something that's pretty ridiculous. Well, it seems impossible. I don't know, ridiculous. It seems like, wow. <laughs> so what about just what do you think about all those miles by yourself? Or, or do you have like <laughs> earphones you can listen to podcasts? Or do you just think what what what's going on in your mind 80 to 100 miles a day? Um, there's a lot of stuff going through your mind. I'll have periods of silence. I'll have periods where... I I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I listen to a few audiobooks. I listen to music. Uh, yeah, that's the big challenge. I mean, after really, once your body gets used to the, the physical load, which I think it, it does pretty quickly if you're used to biking, um, then it really just becomes a mental game, which, you know, I'm still new at this. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not an expert or a professional at this at all. So I definitely struggle. I had some struggles in the beginning, you know, when you're, 35 miles into a ride and you've got another 70 miles to go on the day <laughs> it can definitely be a bit demoralizing but uh yeah you just got to keep pedaling that's kind of what i'm learning as i go just most of my problems are solved by just continuing to pedal forward <laughs> well that's kind of good advice for life isn't it you just got to keep pedaling <laughs> just keep going forward yeah so um yeah there must have been times though like did you go through deserts by yourself? Did you go over mountains? I mean, what like physically, what were the <laughs> yeah, challenges? Yeah, all types of crazy terrain. Yeah. All types of terrain. I think, um, I mean, obviously coming through New York, kind of the middle of New York, the Finger Lakes area, that was very hilly. Mm -hmm. And then once I got down into Ohio, Ohio was very flat. Indiana was flat. Illinois had some hills. Missouri was actually surprisingly hilly. And then Kansas was flat. Kansas was the hardest state for me. Um, just because once you get halfway through Kansas, there's it's just the plains. You get to the plains, and then there's just nothing around you. And it's really hot, and it's really boring. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did not really enjoy Kansas too much. But, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of uh, change in, in I guess, like, uh, eco, like the ecosystems, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm, I'll be going through the mountains, too, this coming week, which should be really cool, the Rockies. So I'm going basically through the, most of it. <laughs> You're going to be northern Colorado. You're going to bicycle through the Rockies. Wow. So yeah, yeah. So I'm starting today. I've got it's like a 350 mile ride. I'm going up to uh, Oak Creek. So I'm coming from basically the bottom of Colorado. I'm 
biking up to the top, kind of, yeah, through the mountains. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm interested to see how that feels. It should be pretty fun. That is a fascinating short-term future. I'm glad we caught you before you took off. But what's the long-term future? Are you going to bicycle all the way to the coast? Are you going to turn around and bicycle back? Are you going to take an airplane <laughs> home? What What's going to happen? Um, I have a good friend, actually. He's another Gildorn alum. His name's Jake, Jake Lewin. He, uh, he's going to come meet me out in, probably he's going to meet me in Utah in September. And we're going to bike to California and finish the ride together. So that should be really nice. And then probably just going to work and live in California for the winter. That seems to be the idea. And then hopefully come next summer, I'll just go back into the Peace Corps. What a life. What a great life. So we have quickly zipped through our half an hour. Do you have any closing thoughts for people from the road? Um, <laughs> Adventure? Yeah. I mean, I would just say, like, you know, it all sounds magical to be doing all this. And, like, in hindsight, it definitely is. But, like, I guess the realization is, too, when you're doing it, <laughs> a lot of it sucks. <laughs> There's a lot of periods of time, again, when you're, you know, you've got another eight hours of biking left and you're, you're already tired and it's, you know, 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. Like, you know, there's a lot. I, I don't know. It's, it's obviously, like, very rewarding, but I would say the process itself is very grueling. And I think if I would do this again, a trip this long, I would do it with someone else because it gets old being in your head all day, being alone in the hotels and stuff. It gets old. But, yeah, I mean, overall, it's been, you know, very cool. And I'm, I'm excited to keep going and hopefully I can get all the way to California go coast to coast. <laughs>